The Old Testament uh, scripture passage this morning is taken from Psalm 73. Please turn with me to uh, Psalm 73. Not only will Psalm 73 be uh, the Old Testament scripture reading this morning, it's also going to be my sermon text. And not only is it going to be my sermon text for this morning's sermon, it's also going to be the text for uh, the sermon uh, this evening. Uh, what I plan to do really is to more or less cover the first two-thirds of Psalm 73 uh, this morning, and then the Lord willing, uh, we'll cover about the last one-third of Psalm 73 uh, this evening. So if it looks like I'm leaving out part of Psalm 73 during the sermon uh, this morning, that's the reason we plan to come back to Psalm 73 and uh, finish uh, the work uh, this evening. Psalm 73. Once again, I'll be reading from the uh, New King James Version. Please pay careful and reverent attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning depression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who were always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. And washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation, as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. 
You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Let's try the reading of God's word. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Lord, that we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about you and about your ways and about your works. But Lord, we confess that since sometimes clouds our minds and our hearts and prevents us from understanding your word as we should. So now we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon us all. We pray that, first of all, that you would bless me, and that you would cause me, in spite of my sin, to be a faithful preacher and expositor of your word. And we pray, Lord, too, that you would be with all those who hear, so that they might become better disciples of Jesus, through the reading and the preaching of your word. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Many years ago, I watched a movie about World War II, and the movie took place after the D-Day invasion, and it showed the Allies uh, coming into France, coming into Germany, and uh, pursuing uh, the German army as far and as fast as they could. And one thing that they showed in the movie is that the German, German army, as it was retreating, changed all the street signs. Uh, they changed the street signs on every street corner and every intersection so that the Allied soldiers would not be able to find their way through France and through Germany as they pursued the German army. And so naturally the Allied soldiers were somewhat confused about how to get around. They had never been in some of these places before. So what did they do? Well, uh, the Allied uh, soldiers did what you and I, I suppose, would have done in that situation. They consulted maps. Uh, they looked at the maps. It was the days uh, before uh, GPS. They looked at the, the maps, and that's how they uh, found their way around. That's how they were able to uh, meet their objective, uh, was by consulting these maps. Well, in the same way the Scripture teaches us, this world is a very confusing place. Uh, this world, uh, to some extent is under the uh, dominion of uh, the devil, uh, Satan, the enemy of our souls. And uh, so he has made this world a very confusing place uh, for us. And the world that we live in uh, can be confusing uh, to us. We can feel a little lost at times uh, when we consider the world around us. You know, I can't uh, look at the news uh, without being uh, confused and perplexed. And uh, upset by some of the things that I, I see there. And maybe you feel uh, the same way. Uh, but what has God done for us? Uh, God has given us his word, uh, which we have in the Holy Scriptures, uh, so that uh, we can learn uh, God, about God, uh, so, that we, so that we can learn about uh, God's ways, and even so that we can learn about uh, God's world, the world that you and I uh, live in. And because we have our Bibles, because we have uh, the Holy Scriptures. We don't need to be confused. Uh, we don't need to be dismayed. Uh, we don't need to feel insecure. Uh, we don't need to feel uh, afraid uh, because uh, we have the Holy Scriptures. Uh, we have God's Word to counsel us and uh, and to guide us. I've got uh, several points I'd like to show uh, from the Scripture passage uh, this morning. First of all, uh, we must realize uh, that uh, God is good to us. Uh, we see that very clearly in uh, verse 1 of our passage. Uh, the scripture says, Truly, God is good to Israel, 
to such as are pure in heart. Uh, sometimes uh, we forget that lesson. You know, one of the things that I'm impressed with as I read the scriptures, uh, Psalm 103, uh, for example, is that the Bible teaches us over and over again uh, not to be forgetful, to remember God, to remember what God has done for us in the past and what God has promised that he will do for us in the future. And every time we meditate on those things, uh, we are reminded of the fact that God is good. Uh, God is good uh, to his people. And God is good uh, to us. Uh, we have a tendency to forget that, or at least not be satisfied with that. At least not be satisfied with the goodness that God has uh, poured out on each one of us. And to seek to be satisfied, and to seek satisfaction, satisfaction, satisfaction in something else instead. Now who is this Israel that... Uh, God is talking about it in the beginning of uh, verse 1. Well, Israel is simply the people of God. Israel was the Old Testament uh, church. And you and I are part of the New Testament Israel. We are part of the people of God just as the psalmist was. We are part of the people uh, that uh, the psalmist is talking about in verse 1 of the passage. Israel is the people of God. And we are the New Testament Israel, just as Israel was the Old Testament church. Now to really understand what the psalmist is uh, talking about in verse 1 of the passage, we need to take a few minutes and remind ourselves, uh, by God's grace, how it is exactly uh, that God has been good to us. Think of what Jesus did. Think about how Jesus was and is God. But he became a man. And as a man, he came to earth, and he died on the cross. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and right now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us. Someday the scripture tells us Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and to take those of us that belong to him, to live with him in those places he said he had prepared for us. And not only is this true, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we are forgiven of all of our sins. We are justified before God's throne of judgment. Uh, we have been adopted as the children of God. And we are sanctified. We are being renewed in the image of the whole man after the image of Christ uh, so that we are dying more and more uh, under sin and living more and more under righteousness. Uh, we have eternal life because of what Jesus did for us. We have the promise of a resurrection from the dead someday because Jesus himself was resurrected uh, from the dead. And so God has been good to us. But there is one thing that God has given to us, or at least promised that he will give to us, that surpasses all of those things. God has promised that he will give us himself. God has promised that uh, through his uh, covenant, he will bind himself to us. And we will bind himself, uh, bind ourselves to him through that uh, same uh, covenant. This is what the scripture is talking about in verses 25 and 26 of the psalm. Notice what the psalmist says. He could have talked about the resurrection. He could have talked about justification or forgiveness or sanctification. 
But what does he talk about in verses 25 and 26? I suppose verses 25 and 26 are really the climax of Psalm 73. They're the ultimate way in which God is good to his people. Notice what the psalmist says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God has given himself to us. I'm reminded of what uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross. You might remember that uh, passage. Uh, The thief on the cross is dying, just as Jesus himself uh, was dying. But then he turns to Christ in faith. And he says uh, to Christ, Lord, remember me on the day you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? This day you will be with me in paradise. What a way uh, to comfort and encourage this man in his dying hour. Uh, Jesus could have said uh, any number of things. He could have said, well, in a few minutes your pain's going to be over. You know, all your suffering's going to be done. Uh, so, uh, so don't worry. But that's not what he said. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. That relationship with the Lord Jesus, you see, was the best way that Jesus could have comforted this man. And so in the same way, in some ways, the climax of our Christian life, the centerpiece, you see, is this relationship that we have uh, with uh, God. That ought to be a source of comfort and encouragement uh, to us all. But that brings me to the second point I wanted to show you from the scripture passage, which is that this promise belongs to those who are pure in heart. That's what it says in the second half of verse 1 of our passage. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are what? To such as are in pure in heart. And uh, you may have been reminded, as I I was reminded, uh, by... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when you read uh, verse uh, 1 with me, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? For they shall see God. Uh, the pure in heart, in other words, the people of Israel, they're really the same people. The pure in heart are promised what? They're promised that they will see God that they will uh, be with him, that he will be their strength, that he will be their portion. What a wonderful blessing that is. And uh, you may object to this, and you may say, well, you know, I don't really feel like I am pure in heart. And the truth is, none of us are completely uh, pure in heart. All of us are sinners, but we can turn to God and we can turn to Christ for help. Because Christ can give us that purity of heart that we need. Uh, What am I talking about? Well, first of all, I'm talking about uh, two passages. In Acts chapter 15, verse 9, Peter stands up at the first uh, great uh, synod meeting. You know, the Bible teaches Presbyterian uh, church government, and you see that in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Peter is at the first synod meeting, and he's talking about how it is that the Gentiles... Uh, can be part of the same church as the Jews are. Is, aren't there different standards for the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, for us that uh, question is uh, very simple, very easy to answer, but in the first century, 
at the time of the apostles, there was some controversy about this. How is it possible that the Gentiles and the Jews could be part of the same church? Well, Peter stands up in Acts chapter 15, verse 9, and he gives a very important speech. And as a part of that speech, Peter said, and made no distinction between us, that's the Jews, and them, that would be the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. How is it that the Gentiles can have purity of heart? Well, it's very simple, really. They need to put their faith in Jesus. Because, you see, uh, the blood of Jesus, Jesus' life, and Jesus' death on the cross are what purifies our hearts. And so we must put our faith in Jesus. Because only Jesus, you see, can purify our hearts. Uh, That's the first verse concerning purity of heart that I wanted us to see. The other one might be more familiar to us. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. There's a great promise of forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9. And that's really why we love 1 John 1, 9 so much, I think. It's because we need forgiveness. We know we need forgiveness. And we want to be assured that God has forgiven us. And in 1 John 1, 9, we see that promise and we see that assurance. But forgiveness is not the only thing 1 John 1, 9 talks about. There's another promise in 1 John 1, 9 that sometimes we kind of gloss over and that we overlook. So what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. The New International Version says purify. And to cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. So what do we need to do, brothers and sisters, if we want to be cleansed of our unrighteousness? What do we want to, uh, what do we need to do if we want to have that purity of heart uh, that God says uh, we need in order to uh, see Him in heaven someday? We need to confess our sins. So when we look at these uh, two verses uh, together, we see the Scripture is teaching us in order for us to have this purity of heart, we need faith and we need repentance. If we have the faith in Jesus, if we have repentance unto God, God will purify our hearts as we walk with Him, as we come into the light, as He is in the light. He will purify us of our sins. He will prepare us for that great day when we meet with God in heaven. And that brings me to the third point I wanted to show you for the scripture passage. Uh, We want to remember what the temptation that we face is. The temptation is to slip. It's to forget all these things and to forget God's goodness to us. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, The way we uh, talk about God and the way we feel about God. On the Lord's Day morning, and then the way we think about God and the way we think about God on Monday morning. They're two different things, aren't they? And why is that? Why, why, why do we think about God one way on the Lord's Day morning and don't think about Him that way all uh, the week, every day? You know, why is it that we have a tendency to forget God? Well, it's because we're carnal, you see. Uh, the Bible says that, yes, we have been regenerated, uh, 
We have been renewed by God's grace, but there is a remnant of sin in each one of us. There is a dwelling sin in each and every one of us. Uh, the psalmist felt that in his own heart. Uh, notice what it, it, it says in verse 2. He says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He almost fell away in his own heart, he says, from the path of righteousness. Now God kept him safe. This is, God keeps you and I safe. But the temptation is still there. But we're still tempted to a slip. We're still tempted to stumble as we walk on the path of righteousness. Don't minimize this tendency in yourself to forget God's goodness, or at least not to be satisfied with it. You know, even when you remember that God is good, sometimes it can seem like it's not enough. He hasn't been good enough. Yes, he's been good, but he hasn't been good enough to satisfy me completely, to make me completely contented, to make me completely at peace. God is not everything that I need. Yeah, he's been good. But other things are good too, right? And maybe those other things can satisfy me. Maybe those other things can make me content. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, after uh, the people of Israel had been told, you know what, you're not going to be able... Uh, to uh, you, you know, you, you, you're you know, you, you're not uh, going to enter into the promised land uh, because of your unfaithfulness. Well, what does uh, the people of Israel say? They say God hates us. They actually said that. They actually said God hates us. How's it possible that anybody could say that? Well, it is possible. We know it's possible because it happened. And you may feel that way sometimes too. You may feel that uh, because you're going all through, through these uh, troubles and trials and tribulation in your own life, because you're not getting along with your boss, or you're not getting along with your wife or your husband or your children or your parents, you, know, you, you may feel like, well, you know, God hates me. I wouldn't be going through all these troubles otherwise. You may feel like God really isn't good to you. And yet the scripture teaches us what? Truly. God is good to Israel. Despite any temptation, we may feel to uh, feel the contrary. And this temptation is magnified, it seems to me, this temptation is magnified exponentially when it appears that the wicked are better off than we are. You know, when we look around us and we see how the rest of the world is uh, living, when we see the things that they're doing, when we see the successes and the prosperity that they're having, it can sometimes look to us as if they're better off than we are. You see that uh, in Job, uh, or you see that uh, line of thinking, I, 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 I suppose, in uh, Job chapter 21. This is kind of a long passage, but I want to read it to you. And, 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 the, and the more that I, I read the book of Job, the more modern it seems to me. And see if you don't think that's uh, true about uh, this uh, chapter. Job 21 See if you haven't uh, thought this way yourself. Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. As for me, it's my complaint against man, and if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. 
Even when I remember, I am terrified. The trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bulls, their bow breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They set forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp, and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, Depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. They are like straw before the wind, and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say God lays upon one's iniquity before his children. Let him recompense him, that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink the wrath of the Almighty for what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half the more things change the more they stay the same it so often looks to us like the wicked and the worldly are successful and prosperous while we have to suffer where is God's justice in that it seems unfair uh, doesn't it and notice how the wicked because they are successful and prosperous have a bad theology in other words they have a bad way of thinking about God you know somebody wrote a book recently it's called uh, everyone is a theologian everybody has some idea of who God is and what he's like and what his character is uh, even the atheists have some idea of who God is, even if they don't uh, believe in him. At least that's an idea that they have. So everybody thinks about God in one way or another. Even the wicked do. And what did the, uh, what did the wicked uh, think about uh, God? Well, according to verse 11, and they say, how does God know? How is their knowledge in the Most High? See, God's not paying attention to what they're doing. If there is a God, he has no influence over them. He has no impact upon them. Uh, he has uh, uh, nothing to do uh, with them. Uh, they're wicked. They're successful. They're prosperous. And uh, the Lord is not going to stop them or become involved in them in any way. You know, there's a, um, uh, there's a religious viewpoint uh, that is known as deism, D-E-I-S-M, deism. Benjamin Franklin, for example, was a deist. Uh, there are certain people who think uh, that uh, God has established his uh, world, his uh, creation, and he has established it so that it works according to the laws that he has given to it. And after he has established it, uh, he has nothing more to do with it. He just lets it run its, uh, run its course. 
Uh, God does not intervene in any way. God doesn't perform uh, any miracles. God doesn't involve himself. He just lets the world run uh, the way he uh, established it according to his laws uh, to run. Uh, B.B. Warfield, uh, the old uh, Princeton theologian, uh, 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 made the analogy of a, of a clock, you know, one of those old clocks that you, uh, that you wind up and then set aside on your uh, bedstand or something, and you just let it go. You just let it run its course. You don't have anything to do with it. After you wind it up, uh, it, 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 it runs itself. Well, some people think that about the universe or about the world that we live in. Uh, they think it, that it just runs itself and that God is not involved in it in any way. God doesn't care about it. God doesn't care about them. And that's what the wicked are, are doing in this passage. Uh, the wicked are saying, well, God doesn't care. Uh, he's not involved in his, uh, his world. Uh, we are involved in uh, the world. And uh, we're successful and we're prosperous uh, because we uh, know how it runs and how uh, we want it uh, to run. The, the bad news is not only do the wicked uh, feel this way, not only do they have this uh, bad uh, theology uh, that God is not involved, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't know, that God doesn't see. The problem is uh, that uh, bad theology of the wicked can influence us. Can influence us. You see, we're much more influenced by the world around us uh, than... Uh, we imagine ourselves to be. Uh, we think we get all of our theology from the Bible. And if I went around the room and I asked everybody, okay, where do you get your theology from, Tim? Or where do you get your theology through, uh, Dave? Or where do you get your theology, uh, Sheila? You know, everybody would give the same answer. It's the right answer. We know the right answer. It's the answer is the Bible. The Bible's where we get our theology, right? Well, I hope that's true. But the fact of the matter is, uh, that we are influenced by the world around us. We're influenced uh, by uh, the wicked and their theology much more than we think we are. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's uh, a movie coming out. It might already be out, but the name of the movie is After Death. And it's about what happens to people after the after they die. You know, it's sort of a documentary thing. You know, there are scientists and there are people who have had near-death experiences. They re-interviewed those people. You know, that, that kind of thing. And it reminded me when I read about this movie. I haven't seen the movie. But it reminded me when I heard about the movie that every four or five years, you know, maybe every six or seven, Somebody comes out with a movie, or somebody comes out with a book, or somebody comes out with a newspaper interview, and they talk about their near-death experiences. And Christians are fascinated by these things. Uh, Christians are very interested in hearing people talk about their near-death experiences, uh, you know, because uh, these are people who say, well, you know what? I was clinically dead for five minutes on the operating table, and uh, I saw a white light, and I saw Jesus. And then I saw not only Jesus, but I saw my Uncle Fred, and I saw my Aunt Sally, and I saw Paul and Peter and all the saints. And it was wonderful. Now, what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, you know, there are people, maybe even some people in this assembly, they're 85 or 90% sure of heaven when they die. 
they're, they're, they're 85 or 90 percent sure that they'll be in heaven uh, when they die. But these movies, you see, and these books and these interviews help people to reach 100 percent assurance. They're getting 10 or 15 percent of their theology from these books and from these movies. And they're even saying, well, you know what, we can use these movies in these books uh, to reach the lost, because after all, the lost can't tolerate the Bible, but maybe they can tolerate a movie, or maybe they can tolerate a book, you see, and we'll reach the lost that way. After all I know, God has actually used these books and these movies to bring people to himself. But even if that's true, through these books, and are these movies good sources of theology for us? Kendall knows the answer. We should all know the answer. The answer is no. Suppose I had a near-death experience, and I saw my Aunt Sally there, and my Uncle Fred in heaven. And then I told you, well, you know, as far as I know, Aunt Sally and Uncle Fred never confessed faith in Christ. Would that be good theology? No. Where do we get our theology from? Where do we get our ideas about God from? Where's the only reliable place that we can get our information about God from, our theology from? It's from the Bible, you see. That's the only place. And so if that's true, you know, if we have to reject these movies and these books about near-death experiences because they're not good sources of theology, then what about the world around us? What about the successes and the prosperity of the wicked? Can we learn from them? Absolutely not. And yet, we're often influenced by them. Nevertheless, you see that very clearly uh, in this passage. The psalmist is talking about the successes and the prosperity of the wicked and how because of their successes and their prosperity, they reject God in any meaningful sense. So what is the temptation? The temptation is to think, I can do the same thing. I can do the same thing. If the wicked are healthy and strong, if the wicked can be successful and prosperous, if the wicked can have all these things and still reject God, maybe I can do that too. Maybe I can reject God and be successful and prosperous and healthy and strong. You say, that's ridiculous. But it's the way we're tempted to think sometimes. It's the way the psalmist was tempted to think. Notice what he says in in verse 13, for example. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. What's the point, he says, of cleansing my heart? Well, according to verse 1, it's really the pure in heart that belong to God. According to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, it's really the pure in heart to see God. But the psalmist has forgotten all that, or at least he's been tempted to forget all that, uh, because he sees the life of the wicked around him, because he sees uh, the theology of the world around him. He's not paying any attention to proper theology because he's learning from the world improper and wrong uh, theology. But then notice what he says next. 
He says, if I had said, I will speak thus. If I had said, I will speak thus. Behold, I have been untrue to the generation of your children. All Christians have a duty to encourage each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11 says, Therefore comfort and edify one another, just as you also are doing. It's very interesting to me that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, says, You are already bringing comfort and edifying one another. But he still feels obliged, and he still feels inspired by the Holy Spirit, in spite of the fact that they're already doing these things, to say, comfort and edify one another. You and I have the duty and the responsibility, as well as the joy and the privilege, of comforting one another, edifying one another, and encouraging one another. And I've been attending this church long enough to know that you're already doing these things. But in spite of the fact that you're already doing them, do them more and more, brothers and sisters. Encourage one another, edify one another, comfort one another more and more, even more than you're already doing. And don't take uh, it for granted uh, that so-and-so, whoever you might be led to talk to, uh, doesn't need your encouragement. It doesn't need your comfort. You know, sometimes uh, when you look at uh, somebody like Pastor Barnes or ruling elder Dave Mang, you may think, okay, well, they've reached such a spiritual height. They, they have reached such a spiritual plateau uh, that there's nothing I could say to them, as puny and insignificant as I am, there's nothing that I could say to them that would help them or comfort them or encourage them or edify them in some way. Brothers and sisters, you have never been more wrong in your life if that's what you think. You know, I have uh, uh, been the pastor of churches in my past. I have been an elder uh, for many years now. And I am amazed how the most humble child of God can say something to me that will encourage me, that will comfort me, that will edify me. So don't assume, because somebody's an officer in the church, that they are so spiritually mature that there's no way you could help them. It's better that you comfort or encourage somebody that doesn't need it than it is to not encourage somebody that does need it. So even if you think you're wasting your time by saying something encouraging or edifying to Dave or to Andrew or to anybody else in the congregation, we're not just talking about Dave and Andrew, and we're not even just talking about me. But if you have the opportunity to encourage somebody, to edify somebody who's an officer in the church or who's a member of the church, say it. Or do it. Uh, maybe you wasted your time, but you know what? Your time really belongs to the Lord anyway. So don't worry about wasting your time. It's the Lord's time that you're really wasting. If you're wasting it at all, which is highly doubtful. 
encourage one another and help one another. And one of the ways that we discourage each other, and hopefully we don't do this very often, but one of the ways we discourage one another is by saying, you know what? Walking with the Lord is in vain. I have cleansed my heart through repentance, through the blood of Jesus, and I've been wasting my time because the wicked are better off than I am. All I have had, according to verse 14 of the passage, all I've experienced are the plagues and the chastening that come with being a child of God, and I'm tired of it. I'm fed up with it. I want to walk with the world for a while because they seem to be happy. They seem to be successful. They seem to be prospering. We shouldn't think that way. That's bad theology. It's the kind of theology we've learned from the world. So what's the answer? The answer is to go to the sanctuary and to get understanding of God and His ways. Notice what the passage says in verses 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. You see, brothers and sisters, if we really want to understand God, and if we really want to understand God's world and God's ways, if we really want to understand the end of the wicked, and understand the end of the righteous, we need to enter into the sanctuary. Now, what do I mean by the sanctuary? Well, I simply mean church. I mean church services. I'm not talking about a particular place when I'm talking about the sanctuary. In the Old Testament, the sanctuary was confined to a single place. In the New Testament, the sanctuary is everywhere you find the assembly of God's people worshiping Him and, 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 and receiving His ordinances. Now, what do I mean by His ordinances? Well, I mean things like uh, the reading and the preaching of God's Word. I mean things like public prayer. I mean uh, things like the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. When I'm talking about God's ordinances, I'm talking about things like fellowship and the ordinance of church discipline. I'm talking about all the things that God has given to us to do as a church. For what purpose? So that you and I might be built up. But so that you and I might be edified, so that you and I might be transformed by the means of grace that God has given to His church uh, for our edification, for our strengthening, for our growth in grace. When we enter the sanctuary, what do we receive? We receive understanding. And when I say we receive understanding, I don't just mean that we have our heads full with facts, although factual truth is very important to us that we do receive that in the sanctuary, in church services. I'm not just talking about the facts and the truth that we get. I'm talking about our growth in grace. I'm talking about how, because of that growth in grace, we are in a place that we can actually receive God's Word and benefit from it. Uh, There are a lot of people who have read God's Word and who have had it preached to them. There are people who have uh, received the Lord's Supper and have received uh, baptism, and it hasn't done them any good. Why? Because their hearts are not changed. When we come into God's sanctuary, we expect that our heart will be changed so that we can come to a better understanding of who who God is and what He uh, will do in this world. And that's what happened to the psalmist. When he came into the sanctuary, and by the way, uh, you know, I'm not denigrating in any way when I say these things. 
uh, family worship and uh, private worship. I'm not denigrating in any way. Uh, the private uh, Bible study that we do uh, when we're in our uh, secret places. Uh, but there's uh, something about uh, coming uh, to the assembly of believers that is especially helpful to us uh, to grow in grace and to achieve a greater understanding of who God is. And that's what happens to the psalmist. He says, then I understood their end. He says in verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Uh, that's not obvious uh, when you look at uh, the outward prosperity and the outward success uh, that the wicked does seem to enjoy in this world. But nevertheless, it is the teaching of God's word uh, that God has set them on slippery places. That God has a particular end for them in mind. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, verse uh, 35 says, Vengeance is mine and recompense their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to, to come hasten upon them in Romans chapter 12 verse 19 beloved do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord God promises that there is a day of judgment uh, coming for the wicked and so he says, I will take vengeance. And says, he will take vengeance. We don't have to take vengeance ourselves. We shouldn't even take vengeance in our hearts. We should never entertain a feeling of hatred uh, for them. Because God uh, will take uh, vengeance in, uh, in due time. The ordinances, prayer, word, the sacraments, the fellowship of believers, the ordinance of church discipline. We need faith to understand God's ways in this world. We need faith to understand the end of the wicked. We need patience to wait for God's dealing of the wicked to come to pass. So what do we need? What do we need if we need faith and patience? We need God's grace. God, through the instruments of grace, through the means of grace, can give us the grace that we need in the sanctuary to have faith and patience. God himself can give us the proper theology, the proper way of thinking about God and the wicked that we need. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we thank you uh, that uh, we have been uh, given this instruction from your word. We pray that you'll help us to understand these things and that you'll help us to put them into practice in our lives. Help us to get our theology from you because you are truth. And that we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.